Well, good morning. We're going to start today with a, with a visual aid, hopefully. Okay, there's my visual aid. So for anybody here in junior high or high school, when your teacher says, what do you see there? I used to use this answer at first to annoy the teacher, but it's, it's a true answer that they can't kick you out of class. They say, what do you see? And it's, it's a picture. No, that didn't work. Okay. Anyway, it's a, it's a picture. You see a picture. What's it a picture of? Huh? What? A bowl of fruit. Um, How does it look to you? Look good? Bad? Indifferent? Don't care? Huh? The, the bananas are a couple days old. Those make great smoothies in just a couple more days. Okay, what else do you see on here? What? Okay, it's a still life type photo. Uh, you know, I was thinking about that for this example too, Mary. That's a good one. They, they, could, they could be, you could make it shine right. But they look, they look ripe, right? This is ripe fruit. Uh, it looks delicious. Does anybody here hate fruit? Somebody hates fruit? You hate fruit. Okay. So... It, to me, it looks sumptuous. It looks, it looks gorgeous. It's a, it's a cornucopia of God's good earth offered to us in front of us. It's a great picture, right? If you see a basket of fruit, generally speaking, it's, it's a positive image, right? Nobody here went, you know, or yeah, you know. I could have shown like a cow pie there, and that would have had listed a different response, right? Okay? So you generally see an attractive picture the bounty of the earth being offered to you. And this is how the text we're going to read today starts, is Amos, this prophet, and I'll I'll leave that slide up for a bit. Amos was a prophet who came out of the agricultural world. He was a fig farmer, which is kind of a cool job, and a shepherd at the same time. And here's how Amos operated. He liked fig farming. He liked being a shepherd. He loved the fruit of the land and presenting it to people. And Generally speaking, that's what he was happy with. But every once in a while, the Lord would come to Amos and say, I have a higher calling for you. I'm going to take you away from your fields, and I'm going to send you to the nation of Israel, and you're going to prophesy. And by the way, he was from the land of Judah. Israel was the separate kingdom next door neighbor to the north. So he goes to basically a hostile foreign land. Imagine that we'd had a civil war here, and the land was split in two, and north and south, and you were a northerner who went to the south saying, God sent me with a message, now hear what I have to say. And this was the job Amos was given. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous job. It's a dangerous call of duty to be asked to do this. And so this fruit bowl comes in because God lays an image in front of him of a ripe bowl of fruit. And as you look at it, you'd think, this is great. This is a gift. You show up in a hotel suite, and there's a note and a, and a bowl of fruit like that. You feel very welcome. It's a sign of hospitality. My mom used to love a, leave a fruit bowl on the table for the kids of the neighborhood. And everybody knew you could go to Mrs. Rowland's fruit bowl and take one of anything when you're over at Rowland's house. So this is the kind of image that at least it leaves with me. And Amos gets kind of sideswiped. You see, the Lord comes to speak to him. And here's what we're going to read in Amos 8, 1 through 12. And this is going to be kind of a step-through message this morning. So I'm not going to read the whole text and reflect back because that would take an awful long time. So I'm going to step through the text with some comments and, and conclusions. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, Amos speaking here. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. And Amos answered exactly like you did. What do you see here? A bowl of fruit. 
Could be wax fruit, but a bowl of fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I'll spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple were turned to wailing, many bodies flung everywhere, and silence. And this is the context that catches Amos's imagination, and now he's speaking forth. He's seen a basket of fruit. You're thinking this is really great. But what the message behind that basket of fruit is, is, hey, you are ripe for the picking, and I'm going to take you out, and I'm going to teach you what it means to walk away from the Lord and what the consequences of that are. And, of course, God, we know, is doing that in hopes they'll return back. But this is a pretty harsh message. And here's what I'm going to do is step through this now. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. So think about a culture that's gone awry. There are problems in Israel. The culture has wandered away from God. They've wandered away from God's values and principles and the way God wants us to interact with those around us. They've wandered off, and now God's letting them have it. And he's, he's passing a judgment down. Amos has a line in it, let justice flow like a river. And you, you think of this torrent of justice being poured out on everything that's not right in, in a corrective fashion. And, and hear this, who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. The first condemnation of this society is that they have neglected and mistreated the poor among them. Interesting, you think about why would God judge a nation, a Western civilization, a culture? Exploitation of the poor is at the very top of the list. And then Amos goes to a second level of critiquing the culture. When will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain, the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat? And what you see here is people who are committed to getting ahead and accumulating for themselves and winning the game and, and neglecting God to do so. And, and so when, when, the new moon, when will the new moon be over? When will the Sabbath end? Which is a hungering for, I don't want to worship God. I don't want to slow down. I want to produce. I want to accumulate to myself. And so this, this irreverence with regard to worshiping God slips in. And there's this preference shown for productivity and profitability without recognition of the great provider. It's not that we make money or that we get ahead, but it's this idea of putting God out of the way in order to get ahead. And then, next it says, skimping on the measure and boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. So you have this mistreatment of the poor, is the first thing that God calls out of why he's going to destroy the land of Israel. The second is they've neglected God and are no longer listening to him. The third is that they've become corrupt among each other in their interactions, especially with regard to economy. So now prices are boosted, measures are skimped on, and dishonest scales were found. And in in that culture, uh, this was prevalent enough that many people who went to buy things, carried a collection of weights with them to approximate the weight, weight on a scale, and you brought your own true weights. And if you didn't, you, you didn't think a merchant was treating you right, you'd say, here, well, check that with my weight. This is what my weight says an ounce is. And, and you realize that they'd been calling three-quarters of an ounce an ounce. 
And, and so this was this cheating in business to get ahead at the expense of others was the next level of condemnation, okay? And then it says, buying the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals. I, I want to say this. I, I think God loves everybody equally. God is absolutely crazy about everybody here and wants to be in relationship with you. God loves everyone. At the social level, I honestly believe in reading Amos and the other prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus' uh, teachings that, that there is still a preference toward the poor. There's a preference toward the poor, and we see this in this oracle, because the poor are the first thing mentioned and the next to the last thing mentioned, but the poor is the only thing that gets mentioned twice in this list of condemnations. So there's this very strong preference for the poor that God shows here. And no nation, no society, no culture that abuses, exploits, or ignores the poor can pass muster in God's eyes. And then what it says is selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Now this was a common thing. Let me track the history of these procedures. Um, they would sweep the whole floor of the granary and take up the dirt and everything and wood chips and just throw it in with the grain to add to the bulk of the weight sold. Now, that's pretty nasty, and that would never happen in a, common, in a modern society. Unfortunately, in my years of consuming uh, cannabis in smoke form uh, in high school, most of the cannabis that came from Mexico here was mixed about 60, 40, 60% horse manure and 40% hemp. So for all of us who did that in the 60s, you know what you're mostly smoking. And uh, it's a true story, true. And, and then here's the other thing. This came, became a scandal here in the United States. Somebody had got into this, and they, they started investigating the big cereal companies back in the, in the heartland of America. This was in the 60s and early 70s. And what they found out is that if you took a box of Wheaties or Cheerios or something like that or went into the factory where they were made and inspected, you would find larvae, you would find rat droppings, you would find wood chips, you would find dust and dirt. And until the 60s or 70s, that was prevalent in cereal-making companies. It was just assumed when you bought a box of Cheerios. And they thought, that's not wholesome that's not, that's not protein that we were looking for. And they, they changed the rules and cleaned up the mess and, and put new standards for delivering grain products. So this little thing that Amos mentions as, a, as an injustice is, is a huge deal, and it's carried through for at least several thousand years, according to this. Now, having condemned these things, so, so God says, I'm going to take you into captivity. I'm going to change the nature of my relationship with you, Israel. And this is what is inherent in that. You have been unfaithful in these above things. You've been measured and found wanting. And now you are accountable for those things and actually are going to incur punishment for your unfaithfulness in these areas. And the Lord says, The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they've done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise up like the Nile. It'll be stirred up, then sink like the river of Egypt. And in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I'll make the sun go down at noon. 
I'll darken the earth by broad daylight. I'll turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. And I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I'll make that a time of mourning for an only son and for the end of a bitter day. And then God's worst punishment for Israel is capped at the end of this. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, where I'll send a famine throughout the land, not a famine of food nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of God. People will stagger from sea to sea. They'll wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. The final condemnation in Amos is if people are going to ignore God actively, if entire cultures and civilizations ignore God, God will, at a certain point, turn them over to their wishes. If you're going to actively ignore me, persistently ignore me, the voice of the prophet's going to come and warn you one last time, and then God is going to sever his relationship with you in order for you to see the futility of your ways in order for you to suffer a judgment that you brought on yourself, God doesn't even need to bring it. And, and the harshest of that judgment is that God will draw, withdraw his word from a society, withdraw his word from a culture, so that people no longer hear the prophetic voice. The Amoses go away. The Bible goes on a shelf. And we're on our own. I, I find that absolutely horrifyingly frightening, to be honest with you. Me untethered is not somebody I want to know. And I live in this body. I, I do not want God to cut me loose. You don't want God to cut me loose. That's a bad state of things. And, and that's what's happening right here. Now, here's a question I have, having <clears throat> read this. I don't want to be overly heavy, but when we have a scripture in the lectionary that comes up, and it's a hard text to hear, this is why these people put this in the lectionary, because most of us as preachers have the good sense not to pick these texts and preach them because they can hack people off, right? And so we tend to steer clear of them. When you preach the lectionary, boom, 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 you go through, and, and Mark takes vacation and sticks me with a passage like this. <laughs> I'm, I'm the eternal positive God's crazy about you, loves you guy that's always preaching this, and I've got to come in here and go, by the way, you could hack God off as a whole culture to the degree that God would pack up and leave us to our own. That doesn't... That's not a message that I just jump up in the morning and say, hey, let's go condemn some people. It's, it's a hard, hard road to hoe to, to find this. But maybe we need our picture of reality redefined in 21st century Western culture. I don't know if you feel like we're crumbling at the edges. I don't feel like we're crumbling at the edges anymore. I feel like the crack's right under my feet. And it's more like a crevasse than a crack. So here's a couple of things that I think we have to look at. And I may state these as, it's my opinion. But, and by the way, I'm going to be talking a little sociology here, not politics. This, this transcends national borders. This transcends particular political parties. This is God speaking to entire culture, and God doesn't give a rip whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. He does give a rip about how we treat the poor, how we operate in business, and how we conduct a relationship with him. And do we make God the center of our life and reverence him? Or are we always walking around God like he's some inconvenience? When's the Sabbath going to be over? When, uh, hey, Randy, you got until exactly 11 o'clock, I'm out the door. I've actually had people say that in church before. I go, 
Well, leave now. He'll give you some extra time. Um, okay. But, you know, um, I think we suffer from a collective inattentiveness in culture to the poor. We don't know what to do or how to do it. You look at, look at, look at the homeless crisis in our city. It just, it just keeps mounting. But we kind of feel sorry for the people that are homeless and poor. But when people put tents up and leave their garbage on my street, I don't like that very much. We're, we're in these tremendous tensions over what to do with the poor among us and how to even approach the issue. And I don't have an opinion on what we do. Uh, it, it, but boy, we have shown somehow a collective disinterest in actively doing things to increase the wellness of the poor and estranged. And, I, and I'm not one of these people that says, oh, we should just hand everything out, but jobs programs, anything. We, we're in a culture that needs to somehow come up with a solution for the number of our fellow human beings that are poor and don't seem to have any access to the system that's so blessed us. I've never been poor. I've always had a job. I've many times had two jobs. I don't know what it's like to not have access to the system. And a lot of us don't know what it's like to have access to the system. And, and the problem is we don't then know how to fix the problems. But there are huge problems that we need to come to grips with and not just drive around. And then churches, I notice in faith communities, are experiencing an unprecedented decline in attendance while saying we're just about as religious as ever. Now, this is interesting. A friend of mine was just talking. You go to places where there are movements in Africa going on in evangelism and conversion to Christianity that are, are huge. And somebody was telling me they went to a meeting like in Nigeria on the ocean shore, and it was a Christian camp revival meeting. And they really had trouble with the PA system because they had 250,000 people worship, worshiping on the beach coming to a like a weekend conference. They came without food or anything, just camp out. quarter of a million people interested in hearing what God has to say to that culture and worship. You know, I mean, you, you talk about there are places around the world where and in China there's a big revival going on where God has gotten the attention of people and they're turning their hearts back to God. And the hearts of the youth culture is going back to God. And there's a resurgence in certain places around the world of genuine, authentic, sacrificial Christian faith. And we've kind of culturalized ours and put it in an hour-a-week box. And Hauervoss, Stanley Hauervoss, you ever heard of him? He's a, he's a Methodist, harsh, cynical Christian scholar. But somebody made the comment to him, the church in America is dying. He said, the church in America is dying? No, God's killing it. And basically what he was talking about is this famine of the word in the land. That if we've committed ourselves to being culturally comfortable Christians and being in country club churches, then you're going to fade away. If you're committed to Jesus, it's going to cost you to follow him. You're going to have to care about the poor. You're going to have to care about how you conduct your business in the world and what that looks like. You're going to have to care about people who are estranged. Or God is going to change the way he cares for you and me. He's not going to stop caring for us. He's not going to disavow us and not ultimately redeem us. But we could have a rough road to hoe in this world and plenty to answer for in the next. So has our collective disinterest in God's stated values for human flourishing left us in a state of spiritual famine? 
We need to ask that question when prophets speak to us. And Amos is a good prophet. Isn't it? That's a cool prophet, isn't it? If you can say something 3,000 years ago and it gets attention, if you can say something 2,400 years ago to Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer to say no to Hitler, and if Amos can speak to my friend John Perkins, to Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy, the civil rights movement is founded much in a vision from Amos. The end to apartheid in South Africa was rooted deeply in a version of Amos, and I've heard a lot of Amos conversations of that struggle. The prophets come to us at critical time, and the voice of the prophet tends to ring across the generations. And perhaps Amos's invectives here are a way for us to take inventory of how we're living our lives in this world, in this culture in which we take part. Have we subjected ourselves to social and spiritual diminution because of the pathways we've chosen, the comfort we seek? So literally, what in heaven's name can we do? If I got you a little bummed out, I got you right where I want you. Um, Because I'm a little bummed out when I read this. And I'm nervous talking about it, right? I'm afraid somebody say, oh, you're a this or you're a that. I'm just a confused sinner trying to find a way to Jesus and trying to honor him in this world. And I, and I want us all to be that. So what in heaven's name do we do? Are we lost and rejected? I don't think so, thanks be to God. But I think we're being put on warning as a culture. The foundations are shaking. The floor has some cracks. Amos's words speak powerfully into the day and age we're in. If we're willing to hear those and wrestle with them, I think there are gracious ways forward for ourselves individually, spiritually, for our life as a church, and for our culture to extend itself. The blessings of our Western culture have been legion over these last 2,000 years. Let's hear the voice of the prophet this time around, heading into the third millennium, so that we don't fail to flourish, so we don't fail to be God's lighthouse to the world as his church and as his people. When you come to the table this morning, I think what I'd just like to ask is, will you ask yourself what Amos and his message would say to you? Is there an edge on your life, your business practices, your spiritual disciplines? Is there an edge in there that you need to sharpen, that you need to talk through with a friend or a pastor? that you need to do some strategy on and say, Lord, let's reason together. I want a way forward that changes the world, that changes lives for the better, that moves toward flourishing. I've seen many of you here doing those very things. Teach us those ways. And for those of us who are a little stuck and can't get over the hump of hearing the voice of the prophet, turn to some of those people, ask them what they're doing, how they're making a way forward. So ask for the courage to live that way. Ask for the courage to take a step this week as you come to the table this morning.